Hi, I'm Tim Tortora, and you're listening to Chasing Dreams with Amy J. Welcome to Chasing Dreams with Amy J. The time is now to chase your dreams and find happiness. To help you on your chase, here's Amy J. Hey, Dream Chasers, this is Amy J. And thank you so much for tuning in to episode 260 of Chasing Dreams. Today, I have a fun episode for you guys. It's a little bit of a peek behind the curtains of Hollywood. With us today is Tim Tortora. He's an ex-movie producer and outsourced CFO for producers in Hollywood today. After 30 years in the film and television industry, working with influential companies such as Harpo Films, Sony Pictures, Disney, TriStar Pictures, and Columbia Pictures, Tim uses his expertise to help film and TV writers, directors, actors, producers, and crew learn how to get connected to real producers in Hollywood so they can build their careers and network. So I wanted to bring Tim on because I think some of you guys have this aspirations to go to Hollywood. Here's some help for you. All right. So without further ado, here's Tim. Hey, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So it's interesting because you have a background in film and there are so many questions I have in film, but I'm curious, did young Tim, teenage Tim, 13 year old Tim, what yes. did Tim want to be Yes. when he grew up? Was it film? Yes. 100%. Okay. From the time I was 12 years old, I grew up in Southern California mm-hmm. and my parents had tickets to a couple of the theaters in LA. And we were about 40 minutes away in a town called Fullerton, which is just suburban Los Angeles. It's in Orange County. And I remember driving by the studios and saying to my dad, what's behind those gates? What's going on back there? I want to know. <laughs> and he's like, "That those are the studios. That's where they make movies and TV shows. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. And I grew up a son of two Orange County entrepreneurs. And the implication was I would take over their businesses when I got old enough. Mm. And uh, I remember being 18 saying to my dad, I don't want to do what you do. I want to go work in Hollywood. I want to be, I want to work in the music business at the time. And uh, which later graduated into the movie business. And it just, I got a degree in, in advertising. I got a job as an undergrad, my, literally my freshman year, second semester, working as a tape op in a recording studio. And it just blew up from there. And it kind of grew year after year, small, I've done every crappy job you can imagine (laughs) in film production and in advertising and marketing in the movie business. So when you were in college and you had that conversation with your your dad, Mm -hmm. what gave you the bravery to do that, by the way? Because stupidity. Sorry to cut you off. (laughs) No, That's an honest answer, uh, because I think a lot of people are afraid to have it. So if if stupid is what gets you to have it, how did he take it? He actually, you know what I was, he actually, you're going to make me cry. I can remember my dad looking at me and saying to me, whatever you want to do, I'm not offended that you don't want to do this. And he could tell that it was the hardest conversation I was having with someone. I was a kid and I was saying to my dad, I'm not interested in your path. I want to go find my own. And he later told me like 15 years later, he had said to me, I could tell that was a really hard conversation for you to have. And to be less flippant about the answer being stupid. Yeah, I'm movie stupid for sure. Mm -hmm. But, and have been since I was a teenager. When I was young, I used to fall asleep in front of the Oscars because it was on too late. You know, that kind of thing. I would fall asleep at nine o'clock PM. And I, you know, because I was, I was a kid. But to be less sort of, like I said, flippant, I just had the presence of mind that I wasn't going to be happy following in my dad's path or my mom's path. I didn't want to work in printing. I didn't want to work in the travel industry both of which, by the way, are gone. And, you know, the 
computer put those businesses out of existence. Right. And I just wanted I pr- wanted to pursue what I thought was interesting and what I dreamed of doing, which was being a musician, which in retrospect wasn't going to be me as I as I evolved and I became got closer to it and I got moved closer up into having that be my life. I realized there were guys who were better than me. They mm-hmm. were more passionate than me. They played with soul. I could play well, but I couldn't play with soul flawlessly. And the guys who could, they practiced six hours a day. And I was like, I don't want to do anything six hours a day. There's a million other things <laughs> I'd rather do in six hours than sit there and practice drums, right? Yeah. So yeah. I had the presence of mind at a young age to realize that I had a lot of interests and I needed to pursue them. You present it as having the presence of mind to, to have that conversation. A lot of people regret delaying that conversation. And it's actually sure. impressive that you had it, that you took control right then and there. A lot of them will, will kind of struggle, try to figure it out and be like, I can find a way. And, mm-hmm. and the fact that you're doing music, something you enjoyed, figured out, hey, maybe this isn't it. What happened after music, though? So you're, you're doing all these jobs you've worked <laughs> Right. I mean, how do you figure out what the next step is once you realize six hours a day of music is not for me? Well, it's interesting. I'm laughing because the circumstance that got me to work in movies and not movie or in movies and not music Mm -hmm. was I spent my entire college career working in a recording studio. And I saw these musicians come through who were broke, who were barely making it. They Mm -hmm. were 40 years old, driving crappy cars, wearing clothes that were beat up. I, you know, I worked on a on Poison's first record. I worked on a bunch of other big uh, hair metal bands because that was the thing in the late 80s in LA and, and a lot of independent rock. And I just remember looking around going, I don't really want to be that guy. I don't, I don't want to be struggling for art, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm truly not an artist, right? And, that, and that's what I later realized in my 20s is I'm the guy with the most obvious idea in the room. I can do the art, but I'm not tip of the spear and great at it, right? There's people who are a lot better at it than me. So let those folks do it and I'll, I'll find my niche. But what got me into the movie business was I graduated with a degree in advertising mm-hmm. for the simple fact that I wanted out. And the university I went to, if you got a business degree, it was going to take you seven years full-time. Well, quote, full-time. You couldn't get enough classes to graduate in four. Wow. So I switched majors from music to business to ultimately advertising. That's how I got my, that's what my degree was in. And I got a degree in advertising and I was wanted to work in marketing at a movie studio or I wanted to work in music at a label. Mm-hmm. And I, so I sent my letter out to all the record labels, my cover letter and my resume, and it had two typos in it. And Rob Gold, who was the head of marketing at A&M at the time, wrote with pencil on, on my cover letter, Tim, although you sound like a bright guy, I could never consider hiring someone who can't write a flawless cover letter. And he circled the two typos which actually one was a typo and the other was grammatically questionable. It was dear Rob colon instead of semicolon. So, and or colon instead of comma, whatever. I have it somewhere in a file, but anyway, whatever. He had sent me this letter back. And so I called him up and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, sorry, but he's like, nope, sorry, man, you blew it. You had your chance. So I corrected the typos and sent it to the studios and I got a job at Columbia Pictures working in marketing for an ad agency called McCann Erickson. And that's how my career in movies started. Random. Was it love at first sight the moment you got in there though? Oh yeah, for sure. I remember walking across the lot and just looking around like, holy cow, these buildings, these people, this is, this was built in the twenties. It was called the Irving J. Thalberg building. I knew who he was. I'm walking, I'm looking at these sound stages thinking to myself, 
this is old MGM. I, I knew about all of it because I had read everything I could get my hands on about the mm -hmm. history of Hollywood from, which at the time was really hard. You had to, you had to seek it out. And some librarian at the college or local library had to buy the book that was about that thing, right? So yeah. I wrote a book about um, David O. Selznick and I got it from the library at my university at Fullerton, at Cal State Fullerton. And I just plowed through it and I was totally into it. So when I was walking down the lot, on what was Lorimar Television, which later became Sony Pictures, I just remember looking around going, this is amazing. I, I'm pinching myself. I couldn't believe I was behind the gate, now working in a suit with a tie, walking down the street, working on a $115 million account with my boss. That was one of 11 people. I was a junior nobody, 23 years old, but a pig in mud. I just knew I was pinching myself. I couldn't believe I'd gotten there. When I left law school and I was... Um trying out for the bar and whatnot. I was I actually took the California bar, did not pass, but I had uh, applied for, I think ABC, ABC had this like summer program or like a one year program that you could mm. do to kind of go in and figure out what you want to do. And I made it to the final round, which was amazing. That is. And I, I came out to the studio, ABC studios. And I remember coming through the gate and I remember going into the building and I remember being just in shock and awe of of everything it's a machine just, isn't it it's incredible yeah right you talk about being a pig in mud i just i was like kid in a candy store like what is this is crazy yeah and so it didn't work out i didn't but i understand that feeling yeah. of joy and so you've done more than just ads though for movies i mean uh, the thing is you have a wealth of knowledge spanning 30 years I 30 i started in 1985 so it's 2000 it's 2022 so over 35 years over 35 years and so yeah. there's a lot of misconception that some people have with the film industry with hollywood we're never going to be able to solve all of it here but i did want to ask when you got in got your foot in the door so to speak mm -hmm. how did you figure out what you wanted to do because you've done a number of things how did you figure out what the next step was? Is it kind of just trial and error? It's the same presence of mind. I was 25. Mm -hmm. I was working at McCann Erickson. I, I had developed, I'd figured out how to do this report. We used to have to deliver to the studio that gave reach and frequency across 210 markets in the U S for all the advertising we did. And you had to do it by market and mm -hmm. it would take most people two hours. Well, I had developed an, a spreadsheet that would shrink that two hours down to basically 20 minutes by applying a simple calculus formula of, of plotting across a line. It's all it is. It's why I can't remember what the calculus is, but anyway, it was 20 some years ago. So I had figured out how to pull the information out of the computer that McCann Erickson had built. I had developed a spreadsheet to spread that reach and frequency across all 210 markets. Well, it got back to the guys in New York and they're like, what are you doing? And I explained it to them <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's interesting. We haven't thought about that. They were talking to me like they were, I later found out what was happening. I was young and stupid. I was just answering their questions point blank, right? Just giving it to them. Yeah. It's like, they asked me a question. I told them flat out what I was doing. Right. It's like, I wasn't thinking long-term or anything. I was a kid Yeah. and I was, they were kind of grooming me to get, to move to New York and be a media guy at McCann Erickson in New York. And then I got a job offer to work on the Universal Pictures account from Columbia and TriStar Pictures. And I was offered a $60,000 a year job. I was 25 years old. I was going to be a media supervisor, which was something that 
most people in the business took them 10 years to get to. I did it in two and a half. And I was looking down the barrel and I was making $20,000 a year, I think. If I got a parking ticket for $35 for leaving my car to meter, that blew my budget. I was now underwater every single month. And I was living in an apartment with three other dudes on the west side of LA. I mean, that's the kind of life I, I mean, I barely had any money. Mm-hmm. So I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be this person. I don't like advertising. I don't like the work. I don't like the people in it, at least generally. I'm not, you know, no shade on the folks who do it for a living. God bless right. them. It's just not for me. And I remember thinking to myself, if I take this job, that's it. I'm going to be miserable. I'll be 50. I'll be in what I call golden handcuffs. You know, it's a lot of money. It's great, but it's not going to be something that feeds my soul. I wanted to get closer to the actual creation of content because that's what I was doing. I was making records. I was in a recording studio, sometimes in front of the glass, sometimes behind the glass, making music. And I wanted to do that in television and features. So I quit that job. It didn't take the $60,000 a job quit my job at Mechanics and I became a PA on a TV show called Dream On. I had three days of guaranteed work. I stayed for a year. And that sort of got my career in film production started. And my goal was to be the head of physical production, to be a production executive at, a, at an independent producer who was making TV and or features for a studio. And that I did that by the time I was 30. And I did that. And I got the job as the head of production at Harpo Films for making movies for TV for Oprah Winfrey. That's incredible because uh, you're right. It is self-awareness. Absolutely. hundred percent. Cause eight out of 10 people probably would have taken the golden handcuffs. Oh yeah. It was three times money I was making. And by right. the way, had I taken that job to quote Scott Galloway, I'd have a Range Rover and a cocaine habit at this point, you know, you know but for you to take the lesser of the two evils, so to speak, but one that you thought you would enjoy. So the moment you would take this job, right? PA, a lot of work, three days only a guaranteed work. Any regrets? None. The best thing I ever did. Ooh. You know, it was, I was back in the trenches. I was learning a lot, but I didn't just take this job. I, I took the job. Mm-hmm. I applied myself. I worked really hard. I did terrible things that no one wanted to do, but I was willing to do it. I did it faster than anybody else because I put my nose down. I didn't get into the gossip and I just did the work. I did it as fast as I could at the highest level I could, which was in film production the bar is pretty low. Most of the people working in film production just kind of show up and not a lot of them ever actually read the material. They don't ask questions. So I worked hard and I did whatever, as long as it wasn't illegal or immoral, I would do anything. And I kind of got the reputation of the kind of, of the guy who you give him the hard stuff because it'll get done faster than anybody else. So, and that helped me and it, and it paid off because the producers would ask me to do things that took me to the next level where I learned the next thing. And that's when I figured out that I was good at budgeting and I was good in finance and physical logistics and just thinking forward about what do you think is going to happen? And how do you protect for that problem? Right. Yeah. So, and that's the skill. That's what you have to do when you're young, starting out in the business is you have to figure out what you're good at and then lay into that and do nothing but that for as long as you can and do it at the highest level you possibly can. Don't worry about the money you're making, who you're working with you know, the title you're going to have, it's all irrelevant. You got to worry about who are you working for? Are they high quality? And do they have access to the upper echelon? If they do not, that's probably not the best place to be working. Keep the job you got, but keep your antenna out for the person that's higher up and better connected. I think that's true of any business. I, I think it's true of any job, but it's the here in particular for the industry is good because I think 
you write a series of articles to kind of call out to help people who are trying to come up right in, in Hollywood. And one of the articles you recently wrote that I looked at was about about not being scammed. Yeah. And you talk about three things to kind of look out for. And so the industry today is different from the industry 10, 20 years ago, I think mm-hmm. slightly. Well, they, there's some differences, but there are a lot of commonalities. Right. So I wanted to ask, as you're kind of aware of these things, having seen it, for people who are trying to break in now, you talked about, you know, put your nose to the ground, really do the quality work and whatnot. But what would you advise them aside from figuring out what they want to do? What would you tell them to do as like a first step? Someone say from, uh, let's put somebody from Texas who wants to make it in Hollywood. Well, I wrote a book about the very subject, actually. Mm-hmm. It's the one that I'm out promoting at the moment, um, how to make it in Hollywood. But what the point it makes, the point I make to everybody, I tell everybody who's young, mm-hmm. you have to figure out how to make a connection with someone who's actually working in the business for one of the studios or the networks. And if you don't have that connection already through an alumni or a friend or something like that, you have to do cold outreach. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to have to get educated about how the industry functions, what that person's place is within it. In other words, don't send me a script and say, will you read my material? I get that all the time because I'm out on the web everywhere. I get, will you read my script? Okay. Will you paint my house? Sure. (laughs) I mean, it's so it's so non sequitur. You don't understand what I do. Yeah. At this point in my career, I can't help you if I read your script. I can't tell you whether it's good or not because it's not what I do. I can tell you whether it's good or not, but is it <laughs> going to do you any good? No, none. So you have to do cold outreach all the time. And you do that by understanding who the players are in the industry, by doing the research about the shows you love, the kind of stuff you want to work on, who created it. Did Joss Whedon create it? Are you going to get to him? Probably not. Are you going to get to his showrunner? Probably not. Are you going to get to his staff writer? Maybe. Are you going to get to the showrunner's assistant? Absolutely. Are you going to make friends with them? That's the kind Mm -hmm. of connection you need to make. And you do it through informational interviews. You do it by asking one simple question. How'd you get to the job you're at? I love your job. I'm interested in doing that in 15 years or 10 years or whatever the time frame is. And you, you just ask them and you ask them that simple question. You shut up and you listen and you take notes. And at the end you say, Awesome. You play back something that they said that connected with you. And then you say, I'm out looking for work as a, in my case, I'm out looking for work as a PA on a TV show. If you know anybody who's looking, feel free to throw my my resume around. And I sent them my credits. That's it. Get connected. This is a referral business. No one will ever give you a job or an opportunity unless you're referred by somebody who's actively working in the business. And that comes because you've demonstrated that you're relevant you're smart and you've done the research. That's where it begins. And guys, I'll have the link to Tim's book, Hollywood Dream Jobs, in the show notes. So be sure to check that out as well, as well as all of his other links. And so, Tim, as you've gone through the different fields, what made you change directions in each time? Like, I mean, you have... Life events did, honestly. Well, two things. There were sort of two buckets, I guess you could say. One, I had the presence of mind to realize what I wanted. I was always clear about what it was I was interested at whatever point in my life, right? Mm-hmm. That I think that's super important. Trying to pursue something. And by the way, if you're interested in making money, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Just be clear about that. If you're interested in finding you know, creative or being around creatives or being in the industry, that's fine too. Just be honest about it. If you're rapacious and that's your intent, 
you're probably going to find some friction from the people in the business, but there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to come here and make a living doing this. I want to make a lot of money. Nothing wrong with that. I always knew at whatever phase of my life I was at, I was clear about what it is I wanted. And then I would go find the information I could collect to see if I could connect the dots of what I wanted and whether or not the industry offered it. And if it did, how could I connect those dots? Was it through people? Was it through jobs? What was it that would get me to that thing? That was number one that sort of in the back of my head, I was researching like, what do I want? What, what mm-hmm. am I really after? And then I set goals and I mean, realistic goals. And then I worked backward from that goal into the steps that I collected from the informationals I did about what are the steps to get me up to that goal? And what are the, what's the one I got to attack now? And then what's the one in six months and a year? So it was always a rolling wheel in my head in sort of keeping me connected to what it is I wanted to accomplish. And then I got to that job to being a production executive. And I got bored, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I was being groomed to be a, a production executive by someone at Disney and uh, at a studio. And I started to see the guy who was the head of the studio. And I was like, I don't really want that job. I don't want that life. That's way too much in the race car. I want to have a family. I want to be married. I was in my mid thirties at that point, a long way from being married, but, and having a kid 10 years from having a kid and five years from being married. But Um, I realized that if I did that job, I was probably going to get into a space where the family and the kid and all of that was going to take a backseat, right? And I didn't want to be that parent. So in in fact, what what started me down the path of working as a CFO was I was married. It was my first wedding anniversary. I was in Mexico on a picture that fell apart. And I was still looking around going, holy cow, I'm about to get arrested by the Mexican government unless I cough up $160,000 because I'm the highest ranking producers, all the rest of them fled. And I got to figure out how to get out of this place and get 52 American cast and crew out of here in the next six days and $3 million worth of trucks and camera grip and not grip electric trucks, camera props, wardrobe back to the US with no money because the producers ran out of cash. Uh, I kind of, I came off that movie and I had, you know, at the time I was married and I said to my wife, you know, I think I need to stop doing this for a living. She's like, you really? I'm like, yeah, I need to find a different way to make a living. I don't want to be, I don't want to be away from family for whatever I'm doing. And that's going to be my life. Movies aren't made in LA anymore. They're not even made in America by and large. Mostly they're made in Atlanta or they're made somewhere else where there's a tax incentive, either Canada or wherever, wherever else in the world. So this is, 2006, 2007. And I just, I started to transition into how am I going to stay in the industry? How am I going to stay relevant? What's my experience? And I started to segue into the CFO role. And I did that uh, managing a franchise, uh, which was the Benji franchise that I managed for 10, 15 years. So, you know, it just kind of life events, it just kind of happened. And I knew I wasn't I wouldn't say I was unqualified to work in any other business, but was I going to go work somewhere else and do something that interested me as much? Probably not. So I needed to figure it out. And I did. I got lucky and I got a job working for, now I work for myself, but I was outsourced CFO for a dozen producers who make content in for the networks and the studios. So to answer your question, life events. But the, the common thread always is, what do I want? What do I have? Does the industry have something in between to connect those dots? And is it even possible? And if it is, what do I need to do to go get that? And then it's about, it's about networking and connecting and meeting people and staying relevant and staying interested in networking. And the day you stop networking is the day your career begins to atrophy. That's that simple. 
I think people, because of um, movies and TV shows, think that, you know, it's easy to break into the industry or, or whatnot. And here we're talking about, hey, it's going to take some work. It's going to take networking. It it's going to take connections and effort to kind of do it and quality of work. Right. And so what is a misconception that people have about working in Hollywood? I think there's two big misconceptions. Number mm -hmm. one, it's hard and you have to be connected. And that's not true. And I'll tell you why, because the second one plays into it, which is there are a lot of jobs in Hollywood. There's 250 to 300,000 W-2s that are issued by the payroll services who pay people who work in film production, the people who actually work behind the scenes on the movies. So most people don't even know that a grip electric, a VFX, wardrobe, mm -hmm. they don't even, all they think about is writer, director, actor, producer. Those are the only jobs. Yeah. That's about 40,000 people total, all in, who are working on any given year who do those jobs. The balance of the 250,000 to 300,000 are working stiffs who do the job of prop. They move cases for camera. They pull focus. Mm -hmm. They do wardrobe, whatever. So the second thing is, there's a lot of other jobs. You don't have to be one of those things. You yeah. know, you might want to be, and you may or may not get there, but there's a lot of jobs and you have to be, in order to get to being a writer, director, producer, actor, you got to start somewhere else in this industry. And you do that by starting at the bottom in a job that's not, the, and let me put it in a different way, in a job that is connected to and inside the industry under the umbrella of studios and the networks who actually have money to make and distribute movies, right? There's a lot of independence that people make, they work on, they're terrible. No one ever sees them, it won't get you anywhere. And those people make one movie every five or 10 years. That is right. not a network. That is someone you hang out with who, you know, you use to build a couple of credits on your resume, and then you move into the professional work. That's all amateur, low-level work. So the misconception I think is, you got to be a creative writer, director, producer, actor, not necessarily. There's hundreds of thousands of, they're called below the line, behind the scenes jobs. They're great jobs. You can start there and work your way up. They're not easy to get into. And it's hard work. They're long days. They're very demanding. But if you're 20 something, you should do it. The other thing is you don't have to be connected, but you do have to be gregarious. You have to be interested. You have to be curious. Yeah. You have to meet a lot of people. And you have to know what it is you're looking for. And you do that by researching who the people are. So a question, because you talk about being gregarious, being interesting, and there's that might be a misconception, but that finding genuine people in Hollywood is a challenge no, because everybody wants something from someone. Is that true? There is some truth in that. Okay. I'm sorry. I cut you off. Finish your thought. No, no, no. That's it. That's all I'm wondering. Is there some truth in that? There is some truth in that. And there are those people and they're usually the rapacious ones who do well. They come here and they do really well. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of really genuine people here. Most of the 250 to 300,000 people are just that there's a language, there's a rhythm. Certainly there's a bit of a cool kids thing to it. And most of the people who gravitate here are not the cool kids. They're most of the people who were shunned by the socialites of whatever high school experience they had. They're mm -hmm. the nerds or the geeks. That's most of us, right? That's the common thread. Outside of the actors, the actors are probably the ones who were the popular people, the pretty girls, pretty boys, all of that. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. But the rest of us who do this for a living, you know, they're real. They work hard. Everybody works their ass off. And, you know, you certainly find some people who are a little vapid, but they don't stick around for very long and they seem to come and go uh, at a pretty fast clip. 
I mean, I think the thing that people often forget is it takes a village to make a movie. It does. Right. Well, there's also, I think one of the skills you have to develop early on in your career is understanding those people that you describe mm -hmm. and the people that I'm describing, right? There are real people, there's hundreds of thousands of them who can help you get a job in Hollywood working for some entity that's real. And there's a whole bunch of, I call them Hollywood con men. They'll mm -hmm. steal your time, they'll steal your money, they'll steal your content if you let them. So you have to understand and figure out who those who who is in what bucket. And the ones that are in the Hollywood con man bucket or making student films, the stuff you can find on Facebook and on Craigslist, if you find a listing for a job opening, guarantee you it's a student film or it's an internet Hollywood con man. If you don't, if you get a if you get a tip and you and you're interviewing for a job that has no listing, that's probably a real job. Especially if you're doing it for a producer who has something that's either currently on the air has been on the air, when I say on the air, I'm meaning streamer as well, mm -hmm. has been on the air in the past six months or has made a movie in the past six months to two years. Those are real producers. If they have an overhead deal or a first look deal somewhere, those are the people you want to know. You're not necessarily going to know Joel Silver, but you're damn sure going to know Joel Silver's receptionist. And you can get to know that person and connect with them. They want to also network with people like you. And you have something to offer. That's the other thing I hear all the time. I, I'm, I'm nobody. I don't have anything to offer. Yep. Nonsense. You have time. You're young. Someone who has a kid, a family, a life, expenses, a house, all of that travels a lot. You have something that they want, which is a lot of time. So offer it up. Help them out. Guys, you, you should really follow, if you're interested in, in breaking the Hollywood, follow Tim's website. He has a number of articles. There's an article you share because I, I love what you do. And one of the reasons I wanted you on is, is you put these articles together, these blog posts on things that kind of help people like avoid con men. The other right. one you had um, was the truth about casting. It doesn't happen in a hotel room <laughs> or some sleazy producer's house. Right. And, and I'm like, yeah, hey, apparently that needs to be said. It does. And not only that's obvious, but what's not obvious is when you go to a casting session, it's at a commercial building. There's mm -hmm. going to be a casting director. There's going to be an associate and maybe even someone answering the phone. And when you walk in the door, there's going to be six or eight people who look exactly like you. Mm -hmm. Same hair color, same eye color, same height, same weight, same ethnicity, all of it. And you're going to look around and go, holy cow, I thought I was the only one. And no, you're not. You're not the only one. That tells you you're at a legitimate casting session. Yeah. But then it's those kinds of things that... I think people are surprised by, right? Because it's portrayed differently sometimes in, in TV and stuff. But yeah. follow his website, guys, because there are different articles like that that was really, I, I thought, informative. And I'm not even trying to break into the industry to learn and read about. Tim, what is something that people would be surprised with you being in the industry for people outside of the industry? What is something we would be surprised about to learn about Hollywood? You know, it is a business. It's like anything else. It mm -hmm. functions. It is. You know, the truth is the movie business and making TVs and feature film has been over the past 120 years has been a loser for a long time. Mm. Every single studio who started out with the intention of making movies and television ultimately got bought by someone and became a single digit contributor to a big conglomerate, which is why they're still around. Columbia Pictures, TriStar Pictures, Warner Brothers, uh, Universal Studios or Universal Pictures, you name them. They're all part of big conglomerates and they're really maybe single digit, maybe double digit contributors to the bottom line. Every single one of them 
has gone bankrupt at some point or they got bought because they were cheap. Bob and Harvey Weinstein, Miramax Pictures got bought by Disney. Why? They were about to go bankrupt. Disney bought the catalog and the business and the name on the cheap. Came with baggage, we all know about, but nonetheless, you know, it is a that is a business that was failing. It looked like it was making money, but it wasn't. So the point I'm making here is there is a perception from the outside and there's reality on the inside. And mm-hmm. when you get to the reality on the inside, you you realize this is a business. It functions like everything else. There's a lot of people who do it. It's not just supported by, you know, the six or eight or 10 or 12 names you hear about all the time. Yeah. There are hundreds of thousands of people who do it. And it's a fulfilling and rewarding career that pays really well. When you get past those entry-level jobs, which really you shouldn't be doing for a couple more than two years. If you're still in the PA job for 18 months or two years, you need to think about either leaving, going, doing something else, or you need to find a different path in Hollywood because you obviously haven't figured it out. If you get, when I say well-paying jobs, we're talking about $1,500 to $2,000 a week. Mm-hmm. These are, you know, seventy-five dollars to $100,000 jobs. That's pretty regular, low level, right above the entry level, working in film production. So I think that's probably the best thing I could say about it is it's a business. The salaries are good. And if you're not making a good salary and you're struggling, you haven't figured out the calculus of how to get connected and how to get in the stream of getting on the next picture, the next project, the next TV, the, the next show, whatever that is. That's the skill. You can be really good. You can be really creative. You can be the best writer since the history of, of you know, since William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't figured out what the industry's buying and what you're making, if they're out of sync, you're not going to make a sale. A dear friend of mine who, you know, she's recently passed, but she used to say she ran uh, business affairs, which is legal for a, a big uh, Taft Entertainment, which used to be a big cartoon, Saturday morning cartoon company. And there was a writer who came in and he was complaining about uh, the fact that he couldn't get his stuff sold to the network or sold even internally up upstairs to take to a network to sell. And she said to him, there's an important lesson you have to understand. And she calls it the red, blue, red shoe, blue shoe parable. And that is if the industry's buying blue shoes and you're making red shoes, you damn well better get in the blue shoe business until the industry starts buying red shoes because you're never going to make a sale. If you don't make a sell, you're not going to stay in this business and you're going to go away. No matter how good your work is, you've got to sell them what they're buying. And if they're not buying your stuff, you got to figure out how to get connected to buy so that they will buy your stuff. That is a surprisingly deep yet simple parable. <laughs> it's a great parable. I love it. I wish <laughs> yeah. she was still here to talk about it. But and the other thing I also think you have to understand is what you think the industry is buying from the outside. What mm-hmm. you think the industry is buying today, what you're seeing on TV, what you're seeing in a movie theater, the development executives who are deciding what to buy, making recommendations uphill to people who have money, they were looking at that material at least 18 months ago and probably two to five years ago. So everything they're buying today or you're seeing today was on someone's desk 18 months to five years ago. So you have That's to be crazy. Here. You have to be in the trades. You have to be collecting information about what are they buying? What are the stories? Is it diversity? No. Diversity in Hollywood has been happening for six years. I can tell you five years ago, I was on a call where the studio said, you know what? We have enough white dudes as directors. We want to look for someone with some ethnic background who's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. That was five years ago. 
prior to the pandemic, prior to the George Floyd, prior to the demonstrations. Right. Diversity has been a play for a half decade in Hollywood. It's not new. It's going to continue. But the point I'm making is that's a perfect example where I hear young people coming in going, I'm diverse. It's like, well, that was a five years ago play. What do you have today? What's different? What's new? I see. Yeah. That right? mm-hmm. you're old, you're late. You got to figure out what was happening creatively and in the industry uh, at least 18 months ago. To and be you ahead. Do that so, by, yeah, so, you do that by reading the trades and, and tracking what's being bought and what's being sold. So it's almost like they were buying blue shoes six years ago. Now they're on red shoes, but you're still Correct. selling blue shoes. Correct. That's exactly what it is. Wow. And the only way you know that is by reading the Hollywood Reporter deadline and variety. A lot of redundant, a lot of repetitive articles about the same thing, but you're going to read it every day and you're going to track it. And that's one of the things I teach in my book. In fact, I, I have a database that helps you track that stuff over time, but you know, I'll organize it in an Excel spreadsheet. But the point is, we all clip through the, the trades every day looking for the articles that tell us what's going on in our little niche. If you're a writer, you're going to want to know about all the stuff that's being bought, that's in development. And that sometimes is in the trades, but it's also in the development suite of the creative executives and the development executives and just being around it and being in the grind, right? Or if you're in business, what's happening? I mean, wh- how much money is Netflix spending for a half hour drama? How much are they mm-hmm. spending, or a one hour drama? How much are they spending for half hour uh, competition shows or reality programming or whatever it is? How do you put together a budget that's relevant to sell a project into one of those places? If you want to sell reality, do you go to, you go to Endemol or do you go to Silver Pictures who has a deal at Universal or wherever they are now? Right. Probably not going to go to Silver Pictures. You're going to go to Endemol. It's what they do. They may have a printing press making $100 bills called America's Got Talent and all the other talent reality programming. And fits there. It fits there. You're not going to sell reality to a drama producer or a feature film director. It's just not going to happen. So, Tim, what would you say to someone who says that I have to go to film school to make it in the industry? I say film school is a great shortcut to two things, building a network and building a reel and Mm. understanding the industry. Okay. But- there are three schools where those, and I'm going to completely get hell for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> there are three schools that are worth the money you pay. NYU, UCLA, USC, AFI, and maybe a few others. But the top three are those three privates, and I would add AFI to that. Okay. So if, you're, if you can't get, and to some extent, Chapman, they have a lot of, they've done a really good job of recruiting folks from the industry here to teach there. Outside of those it's a waste of money. And honestly, I think all of them do a disservice to their students, which is find your truth. What feeds your soul and your heart? <laughs> Fly your freak flag and pursue whatever's going to fill your soul. Bullshit. This is a business. Red shoe, blue shoe. What business are you in? You may one day get to be Terrence Malick, who gets to make movies that feed his soul that no one watches but they still give the man millions of dollars to make them. You may turn into that guy, but they are few and far between. (laughs) He and Stanley Kubrick are probably the only one or two people in the past 50 years who were able to pull that off. It's a rare talent as then. Um, So Tim, what can we expect from you next? What are you working on? Anything you can share? 
I'm working on I'm working on two, a couple of things. One is uh, this is really boring and inside baseball and in the background, but I'm working on software that basically eliminates the payroll services in our industry, so that producers can process payroll themselves without having to pay exorbitant fees to a part of the industry that's honestly working completely dishonestly. I wrote a book about that. The pair, the, the title of the book is, it's really more of a white paper. It's like 30 or 40 pages. It's the, it's the title of it is the payroll services are running a dishonest business. And here's why. And it explains oh. how they are not completely truthful. That's not all that interesting. Uh, the other book I'm working on, which I'm just starting now to probably be done in the next six months or a year, which is if you're a filmmaker or a content creator, mm-hmm. what do you need to do to be able to sell your content on the other end of making it, Right. So many people go out and go, I made this thing. It's a two hour. I won a festival. Well, who are you going to sell it to? I think I can sell it to this, whatever X distributor. Well, do you have a certificate authorship from the screenplay that you wrote? No. Did you get a deal memo from all your people who are working with you, especially your cinematographer, your production designer, anybody who does any creative on the show? Uh, no. Did you get an agreement from your writer? I mean, from your director? Uh, no, it's a bro deal. You're never going to make a sale. You have to collect all of that stuff. And it's I'm just using the most obvious examples, right? Right. Happens all the time. Mm. And you there is a long list. It's complicated what you have to do to pull together. You as a trained lawyer understand intellectual property law. You probably took yes. one class or, or a few episodes of it. And it's complex. Anybody who puts pen to paper and puts anything in a tangible form, whether it's writing or drawing or whatever, perfects copyright. Unless you assign that copyright into the entity that owns that movie, you can't ever make a sale. And you do that with agreements. Yeah. As you were saying it inside, every time you said no, I was like, oh, that's mm, no. mm." (laughs) Right. So every time you said that, I was like, okay. Yeah. Because my background is IP. Okay. So, so, yeah. Yeah. So every time you said that, I was like, you're not going to go anywhere with that. Right. So that's awesome. Yeah. So, and it's not just about the mechanics of filling out agreements and finding a lawyer, but what are the pieces that you have to do? What do you have to do to make a movie that you can sell into the marketplace? Creatively, not my jam. I'm, that's not my thing. I like, I've always said, I'm, I'm the guy with the most obvious idea in the room, Mm -hmm. but there is a business side of entertainment and you have to have that buttoned up, E&O insurance, all the paper. We deliver 11 bankers boxes of paper to a studio when we deliver a movie now for a network or a studio, it's insane. In fact, and oftentimes those are not oftentimes, all of those agreements have a holdback at the end that is often six figures for us to turn in a lot of paper that proves that we actually have secured all the rights to music. There is no such thing. And I say this to writers and I say this to directors and producers, there is no such thing as a public domain in music. There is no such thing as working in the public. Uh, what's the term of art I'm going to blow where, pe- where writers think that they actually can do whatever they want because it's a teaching fair moment. Use. Thank you. There is no such thing as fair use in commerce. It mm. doesn't exist. If you think you're going to make a fair use argument on your movie or any piece of it, you're never going to make a sale. No distributor will touch fair use. Don't use it. It's nonsense. You got to collect the rights. You got to buy them. You got to pre-negotiate them, and it's not hard to do. You just yeah, got to do, do, do it. Yeah, right. You just got to do it. I mean, I'm preaching the converted, right? You know it a lot <laughs> better than I do. I just understand. I am, it in but the, I in think for I think a lot of people on who are listening need to hear that. And guys, there's so much more that Tim can share for sure. 
we'll keep an eye out on the books. We'll update this when those come out as well. But Tim, how can people find you if they want to learn more and to get the book? To get the book, you can just go to career.timtortora.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, my last name is spelled T-O-R-T-O-R-A. If you want to read the articles, I publish a couple times a month. You want to read those, you're welcome to clip through it. And it's at timtortora.com. A couple, three years worth of material out there about how the industry actually works, how deals get made and what's normal and what's not. And if you come across something that doesn't look normal, it isn't. <laughs> go with your gut. Go with your gut. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah if awesome. someone tells you you're going to make millions of dollars and you're going to have a career explode overnight, your overnight career explosion takes usually 10 years. You guys hear that? At least five. I'm like, <laughs> you guys hear that? That's the definition of overnight success today. All right. Absolutely. Just, but it's always been that way. Yeah, but people don't know that, right? Because you see the movie and it happens in like 30 minutes or an hour, two hours. And they're like, amazing. And it's not the reality of it, guys. So, Tim, thank you so much for coming on and just My pleasure. shining a light on the backgrounds of making it into Hollywood, Hollywood itself, and just giving us some new information we had no idea about before. Yeah, absolutely. I love entertainment. I think it's a fascinating place. The people who work in it are amazing and smart. They're the smartest people in the room. You make a product that has a three-day shelf life. If mm-hmm. it doesn't work on the night when it shows on Netflix or in a movie theater, your movie's done. You won't make the money back. So the people who make this stuff and put this together on the distribution, marketing, and creative side, they're all the smartest people in the room. I hear it all the time from young filmmakers. They're so stupid. They don't understand my genius. Actually, they're not that stupid. You know, it's a it's a hard business. One thing I always say to people is it's it's fun, it's interesting, but it's not easy. It never has it, it has never been easy. Mm-hmm. It's always been hard. And the reason is at one point, which I, I, I think is important that 20-year-olds hear, which is work-life balance is bullshit. Whoever came up with the concept doesn't exist in Hollywood. If you want work-life balance, go drive a bus, go work for the government. That's where work-life balance exists. It does not exist in the free market, and especially not in Hollywood, because there's a thousand people who want your job and they're qualified to do it, honestly. So it's a tough business, but it's fun. Keep that in mind. Cool. Tim, awesome conversation. I really enjoyed it. Have a great night. You too. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. There you have it, guys. That was Tim Tortora. So much knowledge to share with you guys and hopefully just the tip of the iceberg, I think. I think there's a lot to it, but hopefully this gets you started. So if you guys want to learn more about what Tim has shared and find his book, you can find the links over on the show notes page at amyj21.com slash episode 260. That's episode 260. All right, Dream Chasers, until next time, remember, don't stop, keep chasing. That's it for this episode. And now it's time for you to take action. You got this. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends. 